Section 6 of A Lady's Visit to the Gold Diggings of Australia This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. A Lady's Visit to the Gold Diggings of Australia by Ellen Stacey Section 6 The Diggings of the history of the discovery of gold in Australia, I believe few are ignorant. It is therefore necessary that my recapitulation of it should be as brief as possible. The first supposed discovery took place some sixty years ago at Port Jackson. A convict made known to Governor Philip the existence of an auriferous region near Sydney, and on the locality being examined, particles of real gold dust were found. Every one was astonished, and several other spots were tried without success. Suspicion was now excited, and the affair underwent a thorough examination, which elicited the following facts. The convict, in the hope of obtaining his pardon as a reward, had filed a guinea and some brass buttons, which, judiciously mixed, made a tolerable pile of gold dust, and this he carefully distributed over a small tract of sandy land. In lieu of the expected freedom, his ingenuity was rewarded with close confinement and other punishments. Thus ended the first idea of a gold-field in those colonies. In 1841, the Rev. H. W. B. Clark expressed his belief in the existence of gold in the valley of the Macquarie, and this opinion was greatly confirmed by the observations of European geologists on the Uralian Mountains. In 1849, an indisputable testimony was added to these opinions by Mr. Smith, who was then engaged in some ironworks near Berrima, and who brought a splendid specimen of gold in quartz to the colonial secretary. Sir C. A. Fitzroy evinced little sympathy with the discovery, and, in a dispatch to Lord Grey upon the subject, expressed his opinion that, any investigation that the government might institute with a view to ascertaining whether gold did in reality exist to any extent or value in that part of the colony where it was supposed from its geologic formation that metal would be found would only tend to agitate the public mind, etc. Suddenly in 1851, at the time that the approaching opening of the Crystal Palace was the principal subject of attention in England, the colonies of Australia were in a state of far greater excitement, as the news spread like wildfire, far and wide, that gold was really there. To Edward Hammond Hargraves be given the honour of this discovery. This gentleman was an old Australian settler, just returned from a trip to California, where he had been struck by the similarity of the geological formation of the mountain ranges in his adopted country to that of the Sacramento district. On his return he immediately searched for the precious metal. Ophir, the Turin, and Bathurst well repaid his labour. Thus commenced the gold diggings of New South Wales. The good people of Victoria were rather jealous of the importance given by these events to the other colony. Committees were formed and rewards were offered for the discovery of a gold-field in Victoria. The announcement of the Clunes diggings in July 1851 was the result. They were situated on a tributary of the Loddon. On September 8, those of Ballarat, and on the 10th, those of Mount Alexander, completely satisfied the most sceptical as to the vast mineral wealth of the colony. Bendigo soon was heard of, 
and gully after gully successively attracted the attention of the public by the display of their golden treasures. The names given to these gullies open a curious field of speculation. Many have a sort of digger's tradition respecting their first discovery. The riches of Pegleg Gully were brought to light through the surfacing of three men with wooden legs, who were unable to sink a hole in the regular way. Golden Gully was discovered by a man who, whilst lounging on the ground and idly pulling up the roots of grass within his reach, found beneath one a nest of golden nuggets. Eaglehawk derives its name from the numbers of eaglehawks seen in the gully before the sounds of the pick and shovel drove them away. Murderers flat and choke em gully tell their own tale. The Irish clan together in Tipperary gully. A party of South Australians gave the name of their chief town to Adelaide gully. The iron bark is so called from the magnificent trees which abound there. Long, piccaninny and dusty gully need no explanation. The Jim Crow Rangers are appropriately called, for it is only by keeping up a sort of Jim Crow dancing movement that one can travel about there. It is the roughest piece of country at the diggings. White Horse Gully obtained its name from a white horse whose hooves, whilst the animal in a rage was plunging here and there, flung up the surface ground and disclosed the treasures beneath. In this gully was found the famous John Bull Nugget, lately exhibited in London. The party to whom it belonged consisted of three poor sailors. The one who actually discovered it had only been a fortnight at the diggings. The nugget weighed forty-five pounds, and was only a few inches beneath the surface. It was sold for five thousand pounds. A good morning's work, that. Let us take a stroll around Forest Creek. What a novel scene! Thousands of human beings engaged in digging, wheeling, carrying and washing, intermingled with no little grumbling, scolding and swearing. We approach first the old post office square. Next our eye glances down Adelaide Gully and over the Montgomery and White Hills, all pretty well dug up. Now we pass the private escort station and Little Bendigo. At the junction of Forest, Barker and Campbell Creeks we find the Commissioner's Quarters. This is nearly five miles from our starting point. We must now return to Adelaide Gully and keep alongside Adelaide Creek till we come to a high range of rocks, which we cross and then find ourselves near the headwaters of Friars Creek. Following that stream towards the Loddon, we pass the interesting neighbourhood of Golden Gully, Moonlight Flat, Windus and Red Hill. This latter, which covers about two acres of ground, is so called from the colour of the soil. It was the first found, and is still considered as the richest auriferous spot near Mount Alexander. In the wet season it was reckoned that on moonlight flat one man was daily buried alive from the earth falling into his hole. Proceeding northeast in the direction of Campbell's Creek, we again reached the Commissioner's tent. The principal gullies about Bendigo were Sailors, Napoleon, Pennyweight, Pegleg, Growlers, White Horse, Eagle Hawk, Californian, American, Derwent, Long, Piccaninny, Ironbark, Black Man's, Poor Man's, Dusty, Jim Crow, Spring and Golden. Also Sydney Flat and Specimen Hill, Haverton Gully and the Sheep Wash. Most of these places are well ransacked and tunnelled. But thorough good wages may always be procured by tin dish washing in deserted holes 
or surface washing. It is not only the diggers, however, who make money at the gold fields. Carters, carpenters, storemen, wheelwrights, butchers, shoemakers, etc., usually in the long run make a fortune quicker than the diggers themselves, and certainly with less hard work or risk of life. They can always get from one to two pounds a day without rations, whereas they may dig for weeks and get nothing. Living is not more expensive than in Melbourne. Meat is generally from fourpence to sixpence a pound, flour about one and six a pound, this is the most expensive article in housekeeping there. Butter must be dispensed with, as that is seldom less than four shillings a pound, and only successful diggers can indulge in such articles as cheese, pickles, ham, sardine, pickled salmon or spirits, as all these things, though easily procured if you have gold to throw away, are expensive. The last named article, diluted with water or something less innocuous, is only to be obtained for thirty shillings a bottle. The stores which are distinguished by a flag are numerous and well stocked. A new style of lodging and boarding house is in great vogue. It is a tent, fitted up with stringy bark couches, ranged down each side the tent, leaving a narrow passage up the middle. The lodgers are supplied with mutton, damper and tea three times a day, for the charge of five shillings a meal and five shillings for the bed. This is by the week. A casual guest must pay double. And as eighteen inches is on the average considered ample width to sleep in, a tent twenty-four foot long will bring in a good return to the owner. The stores at the digging are large tents, generally square or oblong, and everything required by a digger can be obtained for money, from sugar candy to potted anchovies, from East India pickles to Bass's pale ale from ankle-jank boots to a pair of stays, from a baby's cap to a cradle, and every apparatus for mining, from a pick to a needle. But the confusion, the din, the medley, what a scene for a shop-walker! Here lies a pair of herrings dripping into a bag of sugar or a box of raisins. There a gay-looking bundle of ribbons beneath two tumblers and a half-finished bottle of ale. Cheese and butter, bread and yellow soap, pork and currants, saddles and frocks, wide awakes and blue serge skirts, green veils and shovels, baby linen and tallow candles, are all heaped indiscriminately together. Added to which there are children brawling, men swearing, storekeeper sulky, and last, not least, women's tongues going nineteen to the dozen. Most of the storekeepers are purchasers of gold, either for cash or in exchange for goods and many are the tricks from which unsuspecting diggers suffer. One great and outrageous trick is to weigh the parcels separately, or divide the whole, on the excuse that the weight would be too much for the scales, and then on adding up the grains and penny weights, the sellers often lose at least half an ounce. On one occasion, out of seven pounds weight, a party once lost an ounce and three quarters in this matter. There is also the old method of false beams, one in favour of the purchaser, and here, and unless the seller weighs in both pans, he loses considerably. Another mode of cheating is to have glass pans resting on a piece of green baize. Under this baize, and beneath the pan which holds the weights, is a wetted sponge, which causes that pan to adhere to the baize, and consequently it requires more gold to make it level. This, coupled with the false reckoning, is ruinous to the digger. 
In town the Jews have a system of robbing a great deal from the sellers before they purchase the gold dust, for in these instances it must be dust. It is thrown into a zinc pan with slightly raised sides, which are well rubbed over with grease, and under the plea of a careful examination, the purchaser shakes and rubs the dust, and a considerable quantity adheres to the sides. A commoner practice still is for the examiners of gold dust to cultivate long fingernails, and in drawing the fingers about it, gather some up. Sly grog selling is the bane of the diggings. Many, perhaps nine-tenths of the diggers, are honest, industrious men, desirous of getting a little there as a stepping-stone to independence elsewhere. But the other tenth is composed of outcasts and transports, the refuse of Van Diemen's land, men of the most depraved and abandoned characters, who have sought and gained the lowest abyss of crime, and who would a short time ago have expiated their crimes on a scaffold. They generally work or rob for a space, and when well stocked with gold, retire to Melbourne for a month or so, living in drunkenness and debauchery. If, however, their holiday is spent at the diggings, the sly grog shop is the last scene of their boisterous career. Spirit selling is strictly prohibited, and although government will license a respectable public-house on the road, it is resolutely refused on the diggings. The result has been the opposite of that which it was intended to produce. There is more drinking and rioting at the digging than elsewhere. The privacy and risk gives the obtaining it an excitement which the diggers enjoy as much as the spirit itself, and wherever grog is sold on the sly, it will sooner or later be the scene of a riot, or perhaps a murder. Intemperance is succeeded by quarrelling and fighting. The neighbouring tents report to the police, and the offenders are lodged in the lock-up, while the grog-tents, spirits, wine, etc., are seized and taken to the commissioners. Some of the stores, however, manage to evade the law quite cleverly. As spirits are not sold, my friend pays a shilling more for his fig of tobacco, and his wife an extra sixpence for her suet, and they smile at the snoreman, who in return smiles knowingly at them, and then glasses are brought out and a bottle produced, which sends forth not a fragrant perfume on the sultry air. It is no joke to get ill at the diggings. Doctors make you pay for it. Their fees are, for a consultation at their own tent, ten shillings, for a visit out from one to ten pounds, according to time and distance. Many are regular quacks, and these seem to flourish best. The principal illnesses are weakness of sight from the hot winds and sandy soil, and dysentery, which is often caused by the badly cooked food, bad water, and want of vegetables. The interior of the canvas habitation of the digger is desolate enough. A box on a block of wood forms a table, and this is the only furniture. Many dispense with that. The bedding, which is laid on the ground, serves to sit upon. Diogenes in his tub would not have looked more comfortless than anyone else. Tin plates and pannikins, the same as are used for camping up, compose the breakfast dinner and tea service, which meals usually consist of the same dishes, mutton, damper and tea. In some tents the soft influence of our sex is pleasingly apparent. The tins are as bright as silver, there are sheets as well as blankets on the bed, and perhaps a clean counterpane, with the addition of a dry sack or piece of carpet on the ground, whilst a pet cockatoo, chained to a perch, makes noise enough to keep the missus from feeling lonely when the good man is at work.
sometimes a wife is at first rather a nuisance. Women get scared and frightened, then cross, and commence a blow-up with their husbands. But all their railing generally ends in their quietly settling down to this rough and primitive style of living, if not without a murmur, at least to all appearance with the determination to laugh and bear it. And although rough in their manners and not over-select in their address, the digger seldom wilfully injures a woman. In fact, a regular vandemonium will, in his way, play the gallant with as great a zest as a fashionable about town at any rate with more sincerity of heart. Sunday is kept at the diggings in a very orderly manner, and amongst the actual diggers themselves the day of rest is taken in a verbatim sense. It is not unusual to have an established clergyman holding forth near the commissioner's tent, and almost within hearing will be a tub-orator expanding the origin of evil, whilst the mill, a fight with fisticuffs, or a dog-fight fills up the background. But night at the diggings is the characteristic time. Murder here, murder there, revolvers cracking, blunderbusses bombing, rifles going off, balls whistling, one man groaning with a broken leg, another shouting because he couldn't find the way to his hole, and a third equally vociferous because he has tumbled into one. This man swearing, another praying, a party of bacchanals chanting various ditties to different time and tune, or rather minus both. Here is one man grumbling because he has brought his wife with him, another ditto because he has left his behind, or sold her for an ounce of gold or a bottle of rum. Donnybrook Fair is not to be compared to an evening at Bendigo. Success at the digging is like drawing lottery tickets. The blanks far outnumber the prizes. Still, with good health, strength, and above all perseverance, it is strange if a digger does not in the end reap a reward for his labour. Meanwhile he must endure almost incredible hardships. In the rainy season he must not murmur if compelled to work up to his knees in water, and sleep on the wet ground without a fire in the pouring rain, and perhaps no shelter above him more waterproof than a blanket or a gum-tree and this not for once only, but day after day, night after night. In the summer he must work hard under a burning sun, tortured by the mosquito and the little stinging march-flies, or feel his eyes smart and his throat grow dry and parched, as the hot winds, laden with dust, pass over him. How grateful now would be a draught from some cold, sparkling streamlet! But instead, with what sort of water must he quench his thirst? Much the same, gentle reader, as that which runs down the sides of a dirty road on a rainy day. And for this a shilling a bucket must be paid. Hardships such as these are often the daily routine of a digger's life. Yet, strange to say, far from depressing the spirits or weakening the frame, they appear in most cases to give strength and energy to both. This is principally owing to the climate, which even in the wet season is mild and salubrious. Perhaps nothing will speak better for the general order that prevails at the diggings than the small amount of physical force maintained there by the government, to keep some thousands of persons of all ages, classes, characters, religions, and countries in good humour with the laws and with one another. The military force numbers 130 officers and men. The police about three hundred. 
The government escort is under the control of Mr. Wright, Chief Commissioner. It consists of about forty foot and sixty mounted police, with the usual complement of inspectors and sergeants. Their uniform is blue, with white facings. Their headquarters are by the Commissioner's tent, Forest Creek. The private escort uniform is a plain blue frock coat and trousers. It is under the superintendence of Mr. Wilkinson. The headquarters are at Montgomery Hill, Forest Creek. Both these escorts charge one per cent for conveying gold. For the Victoria digging, there is a chief commissioner, one acting resident commissioner, one assistant commissioner at Ballarat, one at Friars Creek, five at Forest Creek, and six at Bendigo. Provision is made by the government for the support at the mines of two clergymen of each of the four state-paid churches of England, Scotland, Rome, and Wesleyan, at a salary of three hundred pounds a year. End of section six.